Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is A Tale of Four Droughts, and it was recorded on April 20th, 2015. I thought we'd talk about this very controversial topic of the drought, but before we go through the four tales of the drought, just a couple of reminders of the California geography and natural history. California has this unique uh, situation in which 75 to 80% of the people live where 15 to 20% of the precipitation and snowpack accumulates. Now, I think you all like Eureka or Yuba City or Crescent City, but you'd rather live in San Diego. That's just a fact. Our forefathers knew that, but that is a central problem we have in the state. People are living where there is no uh, precipitation, and that's where the, the greatest uh, agricultural areas is too. The second thing to remember is, there's been all this talk about, well, we may have a 200-year drought or tree rings in the uh, 16th century show that uh, this may not be unusual. That's true, but we've only had record keeping from uh, about 1870, and even the first 20 years weren't very reliable. There were rumors that there was a terrible drought during the Civil War in California, but usually uh, we do have about 140 years. And we've had these droughts. Some of you remember the 1989 to 1993 drought. It was four years, not quite as severe as this one. Our water table dropped 40 feet. We didn't get any irrigation surface water for four years. I think you all remember the 76, 77 drought. I was a graduate student at Sanford and augmented my uh, fellowship by spraying vegetable oil, green vegetable oil on people's dead lawns. That was in 76 and 77 for a gardener. Uh, you might, we don't, I don't, I don't wanna suggest that any of you would remember the 1939 to 30, uh, 29 to 34 drought. We talk about the Dust Bowl, but it was a terrible drought. I was looking at the snow records for central Sierra in the Shaver Lake Huntington uh, area. It did not snow at all between 1929 and 31. Two years consecutive, not a drop of snow. And there's photographs that are just shocking. And then, uh, We've had this pattern, in other words, of droughts. Now, the president flew out to Fresno and announced that the cause was climate change. Um, but it hasn't, it hasn't heated up in 17 years, and there was no climate change in 1860. There was very little in 1929. He said that climate change had even caused his daughter to have asthma. I have a feeling it was more, li more likely secondhand cigarette smoke <laughs> and not climate change. But after he was in Fresno, he flew down immediately after pronouncing climate change and offering no real funding or promotion or advocacy for more surface projects. He flew down to Palm Springs and played on irrigated golf courses, announced he was very happy and flew out. So uh, the problem is that these droughts are not unusual. And if you look at the last 30 years, there's been uh, on average more wet years than dry years. The final thing to keep uh, in mind besides the demography where people live and, and the drought is that there's an irony about the drought. The most hard hit areas right now are the west side of the Central Valley whose aquifers are much lower, or I shouldn't say aquifers, that's a misleading, water tables in general. In general, as you leave the Sierra in the center of the state 
and go to the coast ranges, the water table drops, sometimes precipitously, but not always. There's contours and different types of Corquinch uh, subsets. There's all different labels of pockets where the water table varies, but in general, that's where the problem is right now. But this is where the irony comes in. One of the greatest aquifers in the world is in the Central Valley. What we're seeing right now is a cutoff of surface water, for a variety of reasons which we'll get into, which has created a 100% reliance on pumping, which was never intended. Pumps were a farmer's security blanket. They got surface water. Any surface water they didn't use went into recharge ponds. About every six or seven years, or every 10 during a serious drought, they turned on the pumps. The water table over time was going down, but not precipitously. But they still have an aquifer. Where we are sitting today, the glass of water you had today, only about 25% came from the groundwater. There is no real aquifer in the Bay Area. As we go down to San Jose, there's a little bit of an aquifer, but basically Hetch Hetchy supplies at least 50% of the water of the Bay Area. We get California Water Project from San Luis that goes into San Jose. We get Delta, Northern California, Central Valley Project. We get a little bit of the Russian River. But only about 20 to 35% is pumped. Now think of that for a second. Because if this, and the same is true of the entire California coastal corridor where 25 of the 40 million people live. It's not just where these are the decisions are being made. When people look at the valley and they see isolated farmsteads going dry, and I just drove up yesterday on Avenue 7, it's quite amazing to see a farmhouse, everything's dead and the people have moved out. Not because there's not water, their, their water table will be there when this water table is gone. But they don't have $100,000 to lower the well from 300 to 500 feet. But here's the irony what I'm getting at. The coastal corridor is lecturing the interior about supposed unwise water, and you can, you can debate that, but they are sitting on the greatest water transfers in the entire state. Colorado water, Owens Valley water, Hetch Hetchy water, California water project. And they are doing that because they have no aquifer. Now those sources in this fourth year of drought are about 25 to 35% of normal. When the surface water goes, if we would have another drought, a fifth year, the San Joaquin Valley has a problem of finance and accessibility to wells, but they do have an aquifer. This area doesn't. So Fresno is the second largest city in the United States to be entirely dependent until 10 years ago on, surf, on aquifers. But Fresno will have water, believe me, when Palo Alto does not and when San Francisco does not. It's just a matter of cost, electricity, accessibility to deepening wells. But there are no wells here in sufficient number that can supply the vast 8 million population that requires uh, water transfers. This is a very ironic point because the people who are lecturing farmers in the San Joaquin Valley about wise or unwise use, et cetera, et cetera, are dependent far more on the projects that our grandfathers both created and which they caricature in their leisure. That's a really important point. Now, what do I mean by four droughts? The first drought, is population. When we had the 76 and 77 drought, we had 21 million people. When we had the 89 and 93 drought, we had about 30 to 31 million people. We've never had a drought with 40 million people. And it's not just that we have uh, 
a drought of 40 million people. We have a drought of 40 million people where the population in Southern California and along the coast below San Francisco has increased far more rapidly than has the Northern California population above Sacramento where the precipitation or the Sierra population where the snowfall fall. I don't know what your attitudes are about population. My attitude is if you're going to increase and allow the population to increase, then you have to increase commiserately the infrastructure. But the people in this state that either were not attentive to population growth or thought it was a good thing did not invest in the infrastructure, not just water, but as you know, if anybody's driven the 99 freeway or 101 uh, roads, freeways, bridges, etc. There's another irony about the population growth. California, native Californians, people who were born here, is about zero. In other words, we're having about 2.1, 1.9 families of all different ethnicities, everything. So California's population is just about rounded off and population growth is vastly uh, tapered. However, in the next 20 years, we're scheduled to be 55 million. Part of it is that is because we just have more people and greater pool to have children. But here's the irony. We were losing about a quarter million people a year. Three million have left California. We don't know quite who they are, but they tend to be more from the Southern California area and more of the exclusive areas with an income over $70,000. Million, $70, and that loss or that exodus has been made up largely 100% by immigration from Latin America and Mexico with incomes of a lot poor. This is important because the people who are leaving were our taxpayers. In other words, they had incomes that we really depended on. Only about 160,000 people pay 50% of California's income tax. We can't afford to lose any. As I speak, 26% of all Californians were not born in the United States. So it's a drastic demographic shift that requires a lot more social services to meet population needs. And yet, again, the story of the drought is one of irony. The people who thought it was a good thing or that it, they were indifferent to the challenges of illegal immigration or legal immigration from Mexico and Latin America were not as equal, uh, willing to create the infrastructure. So they pulled back on the infrastructure, they welcomed population, they created a tax system that was punitive so that we lost a lot of really affluent taxpayers, we brought in a lot of people who were poor and we didn't invest in the infrastructure, instead we invested in social services. 7% of the budget used to be social services 30 years ago, 40 years ago I should say, and about 35% was infrastructure, that's been reversed. That's one of the great uh, silent aspects of this drought is population. This is a state of 41 million people and the demography is much different and the requirements on state services are much different than they were when we had the 76 drought. Second thing to remember, there's a second drought. Of course, as I said, it's a, it's a natural drought. It's dry and we haven't had rain or snow, but here's what's uh, ironic about this. If you look at rain tables in Northern California, we're only about 30% uh, off. The Bay Area on February 10th was 90% of annual rainfall. But that's not going to help us because uh, most of these places where it has been raining, not 
not on average, a little below average, do not have adequate air, uh, mechanisms to tap that for their aquifers. They don't have an aquifer. They have granite or they're in coastal ranges. Los Angeles depends, I think it's 16 percent on local sources. That would be pumping or reservoirs that come through rain. They could up that, but it's a, it's a city of concrete. So rain is not the key uh, barometer. It's snowpack, especially in Northern California and the Sierra. And in terms of snowpack, we are seeing record levels that have, we have not seen, record levels of drought uh, we haven't seen since 1929 30. About 5%, 10% of the snowpack is there. That's very key because it can rain 30 inches in San Francisco and it's not going to fill up the Crystal Springs Reservoir. That Crystal Springs Reservoir has to be filled up by Hetch Hetchy, and Hetch Hetchy can only be filled up by snowmelt. So when we talk about it's going to rain this week, it's really irrelevant. It might, it might save the farmers one irrigation turn. It might allow you not to uh, have your grass die six weeks earlier or something. But it doesn't matter unless there's snowpack, because that's what the state is dependent on for this irony of having, as I said, 75% of the people live where only 25% of the, the water uh, is found. That's irony number two. Not only is the population problem, but it's a, a drought that is more uh, relevant in terms of snowpack and accumulated surface water than it is annual rainfall in any given place. And as I said earlier, there is an irony that the people who are making these decisions are far more dependent on imported water, despite all their protestations for their daily survival, than are the people that they're adjudicating and saying that you're not a wise water user. You can be a, a yokel like I am from Fresno, but believe me, I will have water from, uh, when people in Palo Alto go dry. Just the nature of the aquifer in California. There's a third drought. And, that, and now we go into the most controversial and critical aspects of this drought. And that's the man-made drought. Whatever you think about the California State Water Project that really got going in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, or the Central Valley Project, that vast a federal project. They've now merged in many places. They were absolute brilliant examples of engineering. The penstocks that go over the grapevine have the largest lift in the world. Uh, some of the, uh, the California aqueduct supplies 25 million of the 40 million people today depend on that. That when you drive over Pacheco Pass and you see that canal, it's absolutely creates what we know as Los Angeles or uh, coastal communities even tap into it. San Luis, we see it's 60%. San Jose depends on that. So it was a brilliant project. But the irony about this is that it was not only brilliant for the age in which it was conceived, it was brilliant in an evolutionary sense. There was a phase one. They call it phase two, but it really is phase two and three. And what they meant was, our grandparents, is they got the easy fruit, that is the high elevation reservoirs, but they didn't neglect what you would call, they got the low-hanging fruit, I should say, but there were repositories in the foothills from elevations of zero all the way up to 3,000 feet on that rare wet year. Every three to six years, there was a year when we got twice the amount of rainfall. It would fill up the California projects, Shasta Dam, Oroville Dam, Tr Trinity River projects, Millerton Lake, New Malonas, whatever they were, they would be filled up and then there was no subsidiary or reserve capacity so that water would go out the Sacramento and San Joaquin watersheds out to the ocean. 
they did not conceive that that should happen. And they built this project when they were 15 to 20 million. And you read the history of these projects, they were envisioning it to serve 60 and 70 million people. So had we created the subsidiary reservoirs, and I'll just give you a few examples. I, I'm an environmentalist as much as anybody in the Bay Area, but if you wanted to have a state of 40 to 60 million people, then you should have finished the Klamath River Project. The Alpaw Reservoir was designed to have 13 million acre feet. Now that's almost, that's the largest reservoir in California by far. It would be, it, it's up in the league getting close to Lake Tahoe. That was supplied the municipal water needs of San Francisco alone for 50 years. I understand that salmon are important and it would have, uh, it might have flooded some historic Native American sites, but if, if you cancel that, then your options become limited. And what are those options? Well, there are, those are those second tier reservoirs, and I'll just give you three examples that farmers uh, like to cite in which environmentals poop all. But there was, as you go out on Pacheco Pass, there was a Los Banos Grande about eight miles down on I-5 that would have every fifth year filled up, and that could have had another 600 acre feet 700 acre feet, we might have had in those two reservoirs, instead of one and a half million, 2.4 million. I am a big fan of the San Joaquin River Canyon. I think it's historic. I, I've written extensively on Henry Huntington's Big Creek Project. Some of these uh, PG&E generators are historic. It's white water, but if you really want to have a state with 60 million people, as we're going to have in 20 years, then Millerton Lake is not enough. Six, it's almost up to uh, 600,000 acre feet, but if you had built a temperance flat, it's not quite as cost effective. Remember what I'm saying, these are not going to give you the immediate return as the high elevation reservoirs or the northern California, like Shasta Lake, or et cetera. But it would have added about a million point three acre feet in a wet year, and we would have that today. We would not be in this situation. So what I'm saying is if we had, forget the Alpaw Reservoir, we wouldn't have a drought for the next four years. But had we built the Los Banos Grande or we built uh, the Temperance Fat, or the Siles sites, excuse me, on the Sacramento River that almost had 700,000, there was a way to get four million acre feet. Four million acre feet, remember a, a household uses one acre foot per year, 320,000 gallons. So four million of them, uh, would have, would, that would be right there, would help the population. So why were these canceled? The last major one, I, I want to make a caveat here, they weren't all canceled. The Los Angeles Municipal Water District kept building, building, building these reservoirs for water transfers. Now the people who may have envisioned it may have said we don't really need it for agriculture or their environmental concerns. But San Francisco and Los Angeles did not stop their access to surface transfers. They kept going the entire time, either by renegotiating delta water contracts or building a whole spate of reservoirs around Los Angeles. Remember, Los Angeles gets water from the Colorado River, the Owens Valley River, and the California Water Project. And they built sufficient, as you see from Crystal Springs all the way through the, the city of Los Angeles, there are new reservoirs the last 30 years. But why did they cancel these California Water Project? And to be frank, it, that idea happened during the first term of Jerry Brown from 1972 to 1980. These were when they were all systematically canceled. The Army Corps of Engineers was demonized. And the idea was simply that small is beautiful. This is the age of limits, spaceship Earth, that if you restricted 
the infrastructure, then people would not come. So if you want to go on 280, I'll give you an example. 280 from here to San Francisco, you got Crystal Springs Reservoir, you have six-lane highway. Pat Brown Sr. would have said, we're going to have a big Silicon Valley someday, let's make some affordable housing. Jerry Brown said, I got mine, everybody's got a nice home, I don't want affordable housing there. I don't want infrastructure. So there was a whole philosophy that was set in place. Mass transit, high-speed rail, that will get people out of their cars. Uh, we should downplay suburbanization and high, have high density. The idea was to have a lot, if you're going to have people change their attitude, and one of them was less lawns, less corporate agriculture, and we can't really say what we're going to do, but we can restrict investments in freeways and water projects. And that's what we did. And that would have been fine, as I said earlier, had either one of two things happened. Had the population stayed at 20 million, we'd be fine right now. Or if everybody just said, you know what, I can't live in Santa Barbara, or I love it up here in the Hamby Hills, but I've got to move to Crescent City. But because we wanted to grow the state to 40 million, and people preferred Bel Air to Crescent City or Yuba, then we have this problem. And if you have this problem, you've got to address it by surface water. Remember what surface water did. We, we caricature farmers so often that they just pump, pump water, or they're wasting it on almonds, but they actually have a very scientific process. And that process is simply that in wet years, they contract for surface water, just like municipalities do. They get the water, and they don't need to turn on the pumps. They use complete, uh, I think it was from 2002 to 2010, I have a small 45 acres. I didn't turn on the pump one year. And even though population increased, the irrigation districts came, we used our turn, which we pay taxes on. We use surface water. Sometimes you can put it in a drip system, sometimes you can put it on a surface water. And any water you did not use, this is very key because it, it's going to dispel another character of agriculture, that water was put into surface recharging ponds. So even though the population increased and even though the acreage tended to expand on the west side, if you look at the water table, the descent was very gradual. I have a hand pump in my yard that my great-grandmother, a four-inch casing, great-great-grandmother, excuse me, drilled in 1874, and its, its little bowls were set at 50 feet. Since 1874 until November of this year, I could pump with my hand that water. And now that water has gone from 54 feet to 80 feet down. It's dropped 30 feet, partly because of extra pump pumping, and that's the key. So when you don't have surface water, and you think you're doing the environmentally right thing, what you're really doing is telling the farmer, I'm intruding into your ecosystem, and I'm going to disrupt it, and I'm not going to have it balanced anymore. And because you don't get surface water, not only will you have to pump and deplete the water table, the aquifer, but you're not going to have any mechanism to recharge it through surface water. Not all water that's used um, on the surface is lost to uh, transpiration or evaporation or by the plant. Some of it goes into the water table. And one last, uh, I had a, I gave a lecture not long ago, and an environmentalist tried to shout down and said, well, these farmers use surface water. Well, if you look at that, some of the studies by the Fresno uh, Cal State Hydrology Department, if you have a laser level field, and if you turn on that pump or that water source or surface water late in the evening and you get it all the way down a 600 yard uh, row, 
and you turn it off, in some ways that is a more efficient use of water than drip irrigation even, because uh, the water is at night, there's not a lot of evaporation, and what the water is not used by the plant, it helps to uh, increase the aquifer. But if you're gonna have very, very efficient agriculture with drip irrigation, and a mechanism does not increase the, uh, replace the aquifer, and you're not gonna have discharge, and you're not gonna have surface level, then you're gonna have a falling water table. It turns out, in other words, to simplify things, farmers were conservators. I have a little, four, as I said, a 40-acre pond. I have a two-acre artesian pond that the Consolidated Irrigation District owns. And every single year they would go along, the ditch tender would go along, and any water you didn't do went into that pond. That was not agricultural's exclusive use. That water went down in the water table, and it, it explained why the municipality of Salma, right next door, could pump water at 50 feet because there was thousands of those on every little farm. It turns out that f despite this character that farmers were quite uh, concerned about the ecosystem in which they had to live, before we get to the final cause, and then there's this diatribe about almonds. Almonds, 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 almonds. California uses 80% of the water. They only produce 6 or 7% GDP or some. I just read today, 1.5, we're told. A couple of things. That term, 80%, is in theory what all of the storage water that in theory could be let out for agriculture in theory might represent. In fact, if you just calibrate the amount of water that acre feet that goes out of a storage and actually ends up in the hands of farmers and it gets smaller and smaller percentage during the drought, it's 40. I think this year it's 35%. Where does the water go? Well, almost 35% of it's been going to, as we'll see in a minute, environmental restoration, fish enhancement, et cetera. And that, that's a big, and then the other, it just hasn't been delivered to farmers. So if you, they're not getting that, they never did get 80%. And I'll give you a first-hand example of what I mean. When I have my uh, one-day turn, take out the, the ditch one foot down, et cetera, and when I irrigate, the water goes into a replenishing pond. That is calibrated as agriculture's use. Of all of these replenishing ponds are not just for agriculture because the entire Central Valley, for the most part, is dependent on pumping the aquifer. So farmers understood that. So that even though they were allocated agricultural water, they were recharging there, and they had very ingenious schemes of doing that that's lost. As far as uh, almonds versus certain crops, everybody said, why are we growing rice here? Well, we started growing rice because the Delta flooded and we had a large Asian population in the late 19th century. But the acreage that has been allotted to water-intensive crops, the two great ones are rice and alfalfa that can be up to five acre feet per year, uh, are, are vastly diminished. So is cotton is diminished. Alfalfa, canning tomatoes. Almonds use about the same amount of water as does uh, nectarines, peaches, a little bit more than raisin grapes, about the same as table grapes, somewhere around three three acre feet per year. Now, why are people doing that? Well, if they didn't grow almonds right now, I don't know what they do because the return per acre is about four to seven to 8,000, depending on the production and your cost of water. And that is giving them the capital to take the wells down from, in my area, 200 to 400 feet, and the west side from 1,000, even down to 1,500 feet because it's very lucrative. Why is it very lucrative? Because the almond board has been very successful and creating altered almond peanut butter, almond milk, almond everything, and it's very popular in Asia that has the capital to pay for it. 
And so people are obviously, if you are going to grow sun-made raisins and you want to make 1,500 an acre or your soil is better fit for almonds and you want to grow, make 6,000 acre, uh, acre, then you'll be able to lower your pump and continue to be viable. It's not that everybody said, I want to be greedy. It's just, that, where am I going to get the capital to allow me to continue in a drought? But almonds really do not take much more water than other crops. Where the controversy lies then is on the west side, which used to be 100% dependent on imported water. And over the years, that water has been insidiously and gratuitously often taken away. And so people on the west side decided that in the old days when they were farming cotton or alfalfa or beets or carrots or whatever the particular row crop was, broccoli, they could just shut the whole thing down and, not, and let it be fallow. But as the water uh, delivery started to be curtailed and the prices of almonds started to climb, a lot of that acreage was transmogrified uh, into pistachios and almonds, and they represent a capital investment, even as their allotments were cut back on surface deliveries. So now when you talk about, uh, well, some land's going to have to go out of production, and it has to be almonds. Well, almonds didn't take any much more water than alfalfa or cotton, but when you take an acre of almonds, you take out and destroy about anywhere from fifteen dollars to $30,000 an acre in investment, permanent investment. And that's where the acrimony starts in. Most of the farmers would be willing to cut back acreage and take their losses on a capital basis uh, each year, but when you tell them you have to destroy your capital, it takes three to four years to come into production when you get no return because we've decided to use your water, either we didn't provide the water we promised or we're gonna divert it to something else, then you're talking about a multi-million dollar transfer. As far as the one and a half or two percent GDP, there's a couple of things to remember is that agriculture is booming. Uh, whether you, and again, it's hard to know whether it's a $45 billion economy, boosted economy, or 75 or 80 if you count subsidiary industries. If you're an environmentalist, of course, every drop that leaves a uh, water, a reservoir that was supposed to go out to the ocean now is farm water that you use for salmon. And if somebody's at a, working at a box factory or somebody's working in a, at a tool company that fixes uh, flat furrows, then they're not part of the agricultural economy, but they are. So part of it is that we have a trillion dollar Silicon Valley economy that's warped the percentage of contributions, but let's make no mistake about it. Agriculture is still very important to the economy. And one other thing is, this percentage uh, basis that you take this percentage of water and you, per you give back this percentage of GP is not quite the whole story. Uh, we could do the same thing with penicillin, we could do it with insulin, that we use so much money but they don't save very many people or cancer-causing drugs. When I hear environmentalists say that, I, I wanna say to them, well, how about all of these gene tech companies that are trying to cure lymphoma or leukemia? They, what's the cost effectiveness of that? Let's just shut them down because they don't produce that much GDP. So as, as far as I know, I have never been able to drink an iPhone. And although I'm very dependent on iPads, I can go for the next two years without a computer. Believe me, I can. I can go without an iPhone. I can certainly go without Facebook. That's not an important part of my life. But I surely cannot go without water, uh, an apple or a carrot or beef that's grown from it. So there's certain dollars that come back and there's certain dollars that come back. And Facebook's contribution to the California economy 
or even Apple or Google may be very important, but it's not the same as the elemental stuff of life. Basically, you need fuel and you need food, and everything else is an afterthought. We should remember that. And finally, we get into the fourth tale, and the most miserable and tragic and depressing of all. That is, had we kept 20 million people, we might have survived. Had we not transferred the population or settled the way we did, we may have survived. Had it not been a natural drought, we might have been okay. Had we built these reservoirs that I touched upon, we would have been okay. Even then, we would have survived. However, there came, uh, through Endangered Species Act lawsuits, as early as 19, 2004 and five, and even earlier than that, there was a gradual diminishment of the allotted contractual obligations to agriculture from these reservoirs. Now think, before we go into this, just think a minute of the conceptual logic behind this. These are people who oppose the idea of reservoirs to begin with. They even put on the ballot that they wanted to shut down Hetch Hetchy because they thought it would be unnatural. If they blew it up in 50 years, it would look like Yosemite Valley. Promises, promises. They didn't do that. I wish they had them because then this drought would have affected them far more quickly. But nevertheless, these are people who oppose the concept of reservoirs, but then once the reservoirs were there, they said, ah, I don't like the four original purposes, aims, objectives of these reservoirs. Hydroelectric, that was one. Recreation, that was two. Flood control, and let's be serious, there's been more wet years and below wet years in the last 30 years, and when I was a little boy, my father told me that the Reedley Bridge was washed out by the King's River. Pine Flat was not, was not a place to go boat, or was not just the Haas hydroelectric project, it was to stop flooding, and they'd served that purpose quite well. And then there was a fourth use, recreation, hydroelectric, flood control, and agriculture. Nobody in the right mind and the right mind that was an architect of the California Water Project or Central Valley Project said, we are going to take these unnatural reservoirs that we detest, and because of them, we're going to create an artificial ecosystem where we can control the flow by diverting it from agriculture down the San Joaquin River and its tributaries, the Tule River, the Kings River, or the Stanislaw River, and we will create a 19th century landscape, which by the way would have probably been impossible in most years of the 19th century, when for example, without dams on the Kings River, Tulare Lake flooded, the Kings River ran dry in August, and the salmon was caught. Didn't get quite up to where we want him to get up now. You start to read these, these really ironic things, I mean they're surreal, that the, some releases from the new Malonis Dam, 70,000 acre feet, was sent to, uh, enhanced 25% of the salmon population that was in the river at the time, and there might have been only 10 salmon. That's, it's just incredible. And then we, in 2005 and six, were these massive million acre releases uh, from the San Joaquin tributaries and the California Water Project to test the viability of having water uh, from the foothills to the delta, or this idea that a translucent three-inch bait fish, the notorious delta smelt, was suddenly the canary in the mind about the entire environment of California. And if its populations were diminished, then we need water to do what? To flush out the bad water. Where's the bad water? Well, rather than addressing the 35 municipal waste treatment and their high nitrogen content, you can't really treat water to the level you'd like it, dumping it in the bay and the delta. The idea was to use agriculture's contracted water to enhance the ecosystem of the delta. That 
diversion is more controversial than the percentage that agriculture supposedly uses or does not use. But let me tell you that there's a lot of people who believe that it's been two to four million uh, acre feet per year, and it hasn't stopped this year. There's still smaller releases. The only reason there's not smaller releases this year is that people in the Bay Area, very left-wing politicians, have tapped people in the Sierra Club on the back and said, friends of the earth, be careful. If you keep doing it, <laughs> we're not going to be able to have a succulent garden in the Bay Area. We're not going to be able to have baths every day because now we're getting to the point where any diversion will start to endanger the actual municipal water supply, so there's no water left. But how ironic that we built reservoirs and then created an, the ability to have an artificial 365-day-a-year uh, river flow, which we probably didn't have in the 19th century. Then we put salmon in trucks and drove them up and dumped them in there and then took the water to make sure it flowed from agriculture that was providing work and um, employment and, and food for us all. Doesn't mean that when you say that, I'm not characterizing the idea that I, I would love to, you know, see the San Joaquin River full. But when I drove over yesterday and I saw water in the San Joaquin River at Fireball going out to the Delta, I thought, are these people crazy? I just passed, I counted them, 15 homes that were dry with yard, dead yards and dead trees on Avenue 7. They could not afford, obviously, to pump a, a pump. And then here was water going out to the ocean as far west as Fireball. It made no absolute sense. Or did it make any sense? And let me just conclude, why do we do this? And why we do this is a political problem. And it's, it's Joel Kotkin had a good talk uh, article on theater. I've written a, a three or four articles. I can't write anymore because it's sort of beating a dead horse. But we do have a coastal corridor from San Diego to the Bay Area who's not subject to the ramifications of their own ideology. So on a number of issues, high-speed rail, it sounds like a great way to get people out of their carbon-polluting cars. We'll put them all very egalitarian. We're all equal. We all get untrained to go down to Los Angeles. But we just don't want to put it in Palo Alto to San Francisco because it's dirty and dusty and noisy. So let's go down there and destroy 300-year oak trees and some of the most beautiful farmland in Kings County. And let's try it on those guys from Corcoran to Fresno, as I said, so we can see Charles Manson in Corcoran prison three hours earlier than we would on the train. But, or let's mandate power and gas so that we have the highest energy cost in the United States. But we're not going to go live down in Fresno where it's 105 in August. We wouldn't go into Target where we see Hispanic families going to Target or Walmart to keep cool because they can't afford to turn their air conditioner on. I have a beautiful office up in the tower. You're all welcome to come up. You know what I've noticed about it? I have never once in 10 years turned on the power, uh, the heat on my own at least, sometimes it comes on naturally, or they're cool. I have no air conditioning, I have no heat. It's wonderful. At home, it's 105 degrees. But uh, the people who crafted the energy layout and the pricing were people who don't live where they have extreme temperatures. The same thing about high-speed rail, the same thing about the water projects. Had there not been a Hetch Hetchy, or there had not been other projects of the California Water Project, they would be, they, meaning people in Los Angeles and San Francisco area and Silicon Valley, would be now fighting each other to lower their wells, and they would have about 20% of their water supply, and they would have a completely different idea about diverting water from its uh, intended use for agriculture 
out to the ocean. And the proof of the pudding is always in the eating, and I'll finish by this common stereotype that we in the valley often make. I know that we only get about 400,000 acre feet from Hetch Hetchy to San Francisco, but it has this peculiarity of passing over the San Joaquin River on its 40, 140 mile journey to our tap water. Anytime somebody really believes that we need to have Chinooks, steelhead salmon, whatever particular species, go into the delta and swim all the way up to Millerton Lake, to take one example, or we want to have a, a greater uh, population of translucent bait fish, all they have to do is say, I want to stop that Hetch Hetchy delivery and I want to dump it in the San Joaquin River to help those fish get a boost. So far in drought year number four, not one person in the Bay Area has said, I want to sacrifice my Hetch Hetchy unnatural, artificially transferred project that I don't approve of and I want to give it to the fish that I intend and I demand that everybody else save at the expense of their own water supply. And that is the fourth drought and the most tragic. Thank you very much. For more podcasts and chart casts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, and Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.